there, you're with Disembodied Podcast. This is Evie Escher. This week I've got Phyllis Lovett with me, and she's a resident of Taos, New Mexico. She has a master's degree in psychology and counseling from Antioch University, and she's had a private psychotherapy practice for over 30 years. Now she's retired, and she's dedicating herself to writing books. She's written a couple books already, uh, two about her spiritual journey. One is called A Light in the Darkness, and the other one is Into the Fire. And she just completed a third book about bringing the U.S. into therapy as a country. Both her inner work and her psychological experience over many years have taught her that, for the most part, we are as emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy as our human environment and the family systems we live in and participate in. Some of us may make it out of the most abusive conditions despite a lack of support or a map to follow, but many of us do not. And what Phyllis has found is that we're all at risk from abuses that go unchecked and continually fuel a cycle of violence, whether it's in the home or in a larger place like a city or a neighborhood. Phyllis's new book is called America in Therapy, and it's dedicated to how we can repair our fractured human relations in ways we can all implement in the lives we're currently living. We'll also cover some of Phyllis's unique spiritual experiences into this interview that transcend psychotherapy. I'm sure you'll find it interesting. Sit tight. Here we go. Phyllis, welcome to Disembodied Podcast. It's great to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. It's really an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, you're retired now, but you have been a psychologist. You've been a therapist. Maybe you could give us a little background on how you got into that profession. Yeah, I really started out life kind of like under a little bit of a cloud, and I didn't know what was really going on with me. And I didn't, it took me many, many years to discover that I had some buried memories of pretty traumatic abuse in my very early childhood. And so not knowing what was really going on with me, I kind of felt like I was a, you know, sort of a flawed person. And I just didn't understand my own being. But at the same time, at a very early age, I also had some profound connections to another kind of consciousness that when I was young, nobody was talking about. So I didn't actually have anywhere to share them or any language for those experiences. But periodically, I would have incredibly loving, deep, profound connections to a consciousness that didn't seem to be well, I shouldn't say it that way, bigger than Phyllis, I would say much bigger than Phyllis that I got to experience and crave. And then writing became one of the ways that I made that connection. And I wrote a lot of poetry. I wrote some illustrated stories when I was young that were really all about my longing for a return to a connection to consciousness, to a higher consciousness. And then I got married and I had children and it was a very unhappy marriage. And so that kind of put me into a deep dive. And, and let me just fill it in there that I had I had joined a number of spiritual groups along the way and was, you know, trying meditation and different practices and finally came to the conclusion between the stresses of my marriage and um, the things that came up for me when I tried to meditate, um, which were just really hard, like I would have some great experiences, and then I would sink into this darkness, and I never really understood it. And later, I understood that my spirit was saying, you got to deal with the darkness. <laughs> you know, it was just sort of taking me where the path was leading for healing. And the long shot of that was that I decided to do therapy when my children were really young. And then I became a psychotherapist out of that. Um, because it was, it was like the missing piece. And so, uh, and then I began to remember what happened to me and long story short, you know, I always kept a journal and I kept a very intentional journal while I was doing healing work on what had happened to me as a child, because I had told myself that if I ever made it out the other side of this darkness, I wanted to leave a trail that maybe somebody else could follow. So that was my intention in keeping the journal. And interestingly enough, 
right before the experience that I'm going to tell you, my computer crashed and I lost that entire journal. So it was not to be whatever that was. I don't even know what was in it. But right after that, when I was kind of at the lowest part of my journey, just really feeling like I'm never going to get out of this dark tunnel, I was writing in my journal again one day, you know, and these are kind of stories you hear other people tell and you don't think they're going to happen to you. But I was literally writing in my journal and saying, I give up God. I just don't know what else to do. I'm not healing. And at that moment, something took over and just began writing to me in my journal. And it was like, it's very hard to describe what that experience is because it's not like anything we have in our ordinary thinking or feeling, but there was a definite change of vibration in my brain and in my body that was very life-giving, very loving, very healing that sort of came into this very dark, cold disconnected place that I had started out even that journal writing in. And it basically started with, we're happy you're here today. And then it went on to say that my soul knew what it was doing and that the pain of my inner child was the doorway to my soul. And that they had, they, and they called themselves, they had opened that door and then what I discovered was all I had to do was sit down and ask a question and they would be there. And they began to tell me what my soul was doing here in all of the difficult experiences of Phyllis and what all our souls are doing here and the journey we're making from what they called the sleep of forgetting, the sleep of forgetting where we came from to making our way home to reunion with our soul selves and with the divine. And then you know, over, over the next two years, I wrote really intensively and all of the initial messages are in the first two books I wrote called A Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire. And there were very detailed, profound messages about how our ego consciousness is working. That's the sleep of forgetting takes the form of ego consciousness, which is a consciousness of separation and operating under duality where there's something's always better and something's always worth something's right something's wrong something's divine something's mundane have and have not male separated from female domination and submission and they really went into detail about how ego consciousness works and it was intentional it basically what it said is this is the journey we took on. This is the straw that we came to spin into gold. And we came to spin it into gold, which was, which is a different consciousness, a higher consciousness that's not a consciousness of separation. And that we came to do that while we're actually in a physical finite body, which was sort of the journey that human beings took on. And that's, that's it in a very brief nutshell. And in the process, I was shown some very pivotal past lives that had imprinted my present life and was shown how to work with clearing some of that energy that I was still carrying with me that was painful and destructive and scary. And that not that everybody has that, but that happened to be my particular journey. That's where it started. How did you avoid thinking that you had gone crazy? when this happened, because it it is something that's a little bit scary when you suddenly start getting messages from a group. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly like they're a defined group that you can see easily. So how did you perceive all of that initially? You know, I did feel that. I didn't feel so much like I was crazy. I mean, I worried about that, but I knew that I wasn't. And part of the way that I knew that I was, it was more like other people will think I'm crazy than that I felt like I was crazy. And the reason why I didn't actually really believe or feel that I was crazy is because the experience was so loving and so wise and so non-judgmental and lit up an understanding of my life that I never had before that changed my life. It literally changed my life. So there was no denying the profound authenticity and value of what I was receiving. And I think that was the main thing that kept me from feeling like I was crazy. But there were times like before this one past life emerged where I actually started hearing in my head what people had said to me in that life. 
And that made me feel crazy. <laughs> it made me feel a little crazy. But then once the life got revealed, it all made perfect sense. And it helped me heal things that I could not have healed just with um, the experiences that I knew about and had remembered from my childhood in this life. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to remember past lives. It doesn't. For me, it was extremely helpful. I've done past life regressions with people and found them to be very helpful for people who are interested. But the patterns exist, whether you go into a past life to see them in, in a different dimension, or you just work with them in this life. There's no requirement to believe in that or to do that. For me, it was just extraordinarily helpful. And the other thing that really helped me not feel crazy was that I was working with someone at the time that this um, these messages came to me who really believed also in the authenticity and the value of them. And just having one person give me validation from the outside was extremely helpful. Yeah, I've had that situation too in the past. I had some kind of profound dark night of the soul revelations. And then I asked somebody I knew who was very spiritual about it. And his answers, you know, to my questions really put me at ease. I remember feeling so much more relaxed, just yeah. talking to somebody who had been through it before and wasn't freaked out by what I told him, you know? Right. So, yeah, it's always good to have a certain camaraderie when you're going through anything you know, if somebody's gone through it as well and can relate, it's so comforting, I think. And that's why, you know, I'm sure that's part of why you do your podcast, because we need each other for these journeys that we make that are not necessarily quite mainstream yet, you know, but right. that more and more people are having. Right. And I think I've done a lot of esoteric work and I think it is very kind of isolating in a way because you're doing things at home. You're taking journeys at home, inner journeys. And I was going through a phase at one point years ago where I would tell people about some of the revelations I had, and I would just get really blank stares like, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I thought, okay, I probably shouldn't share this with everybody. And here I am sharing it again somewhat. But I mean, the thing is, is I feel like we should overcome that, I guess, fear of rejection, fear that people are not going to relate to it, not going to understand, because there's no way to, like, if you never share it, then everybody will be that way. They'll, everybody will be reluctant to share, right? And then we're never going to learn anything from each other. Right. And I think I, I totally agree with that. And I think, and I don't know if you experienced this, but one of the things that I experienced, and I don't think this is totally uncommon, is that the sharing of it and having the courage to step out of mainstream thinking, at least it was main, stepping out when I did it initially, having the courage to do that was actually part of my growth. That's part of what has made me a stronger person and made me more whole because I was, I wanted to keep all of that hidden because I was scared, you know, of what repercussions could be, even though, you know, I don't live in a country, at least not yet, <laughs> I'm going to be persecuted for that, you know, so there wasn't, there wasn't really an immediate threat. It was really coming from, for me, it was coming from past lives and also just from stepping out of the mainstream. And, and, and I think what's interesting though, is, you know, human beings seem to have a history of revering people who have had divine connection, but there's also an injunction that it can't be for the layman. It's got to be only certain special people that we revere. And I think part of what's happening on the earth today, and this was really made clear to me from the messages I got, but also just from my experience, is that this isn't a time where we're going to have a Messiah. This consciousness is rising up through the populace, through, through people, through ordinary people. And that's, that's what I understand the second coming to be, if there's, you know, taking that out of a religious context, but just a rising of consciousness through ordinary people. That's the, t the time has come for humanity to wake up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that's true. It's coming in such fits and starts. It's hard to really measure it because it's like whenever you start to think 
you know, they were saying what a couple of years ago, like, oh, we, we're going through a very long phase of peace for the most part in the world. And then, you know, the war in Ukraine, and there's like so many different steps backward that I think we're taking. And I feel that way with women a lot too, that women better watch it because it's like, we're constantly being relegated as second class again, it seems even in the U S and it's like, once we kind of break out of that, then we're somehow going back into it, retreating into it again. And sometimes I get very frustrated with the passivity that people have. Okay. And women are known, you know, they tend to have that passive side. I've seen it in my family a lot. And so I try to counter that and be very active and maybe even aggressive with my thinking, but is that helping or is it turning everybody off? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think there's so many ways to look at that issue for sure. And the one I would share is what I heard from this divine source. And, and this is one perspective on, and, and I think there's many, so I'm not saying this is the only perspective, but the perspective that helps me that I was told is that um, a couple of things. One is that as consciousness rises through us, as more and more people start to have experiences of connecting to divine love or divine wisdom in some form, as more people break out of, you know, the, the mindset of right and wrong and good and evil and war and, and all of that, that the pushback is going to be really strong, that ego consciousness dies hard in us as individuals you know, and I can say that for myself, you know, there's pushback in my own psyche. Don't say that, stay hidden. Um, This is scary, play smaller because something bad might happen um, or you're crazy or any of those things. There's pushback from a level of consciousness that we have, that we took on to work through, but, but the resistance is hard. And so that's happening, I think, in a, on a national level and on a global level, that the pushback against you know, like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or any of those movements for more justice or social justice or, you know, the pushback against what was happening at the border with immigration, that there's that there's a lot of pushback against this rising sense of our shared humanity, that we're in it together, that we need to care for one another, that we're hovering on the brink of extinction if we keep threatening war with nuclear weapons that can destroy life as we know it. So that interplay, I think, is happening. Two steps forward, one step back. I think that's part of it. And the other thing that I was told that I I felt was really profound was that what was said, what was what I was told was that the greatest challenge that human beings took on in our incarnate form was to be separated into the bodies of male and female. And that that is the biggest separation that we have, that we're working to overcome. And the way that that plays out in ego consciousness, when that duality becomes more and more extreme, the division between the masculine and feminine becomes more and more extreme, it takes the form of domination and submission. And I think that's what we're seeing, that the forces of domination are rearing their head like really strong. We are going to dominate you, whether it's dominating women or dominating the economy or dominating the justice system or dominating racially or dominating with weapons or dominating with very extreme ideologies. So I think that's the force that's at play. And and it looks like, and it feels like a lot, like it's winning, you know, um, or it's scary because it's a very destructive when the when the masculine energy of action is so separated from the feminine energy of nurturance and receptivity, you get these extremes of domination and submission that we're here to take on. I mean, that's all what what I was told was that we chose, we asked for this life, we were asked to take on this life and we chose it. So it's a mutual agreement between us and our soul that we're here today, us and our soul and God or spirit or however you think of creation. It's a mutual agreement that we're here exactly in the parts that we play for the purpose ultimately of helping our brother and sister human beings make their way home to their connection to the divine. And that's what keeps me going. 
Yeah. I mean, I want to see people as brothers and sisters too. I, I try, I strive for that, but then, you know, you feel like you're always being bonked on the head, so to speak, by a brother or a sister. <laughs> and then you have that reaction. You want to bonk them back. You know, it's just an ongoing battle. You have to fight with yourself constantly. I think that's really true. I think it's really hard not to have a negative reaction to the people that are appear to be the most hurtful, the most cruel, the most destructive, um, and the most hateful of others. It's very, very hard. I think it's in our nature to want to fight back. And that's actually one of the reasons, or it's one of the issues that I address in my current book. And is it okay if I segue there for a minute and we can come back? But Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my current book is called America in Therapy. And the whole idea of the book is that what I've seen as over years of 30 years of being a psychotherapist and having done tons of therapy myself. And I also worked um, as co-director of a sexual abuse treatment program um, when I got out of graduate school. So, and, and there's rampant abuse in our country. So the average person that comes to therapy in the practice that I had, and I'm talking about ordinary people like you and me who have jobs and raise their kids and pay their taxes and do whatever, the amount of suffering from abuse and neglect and unavailable parents and addiction and depression and high levels of anxiety is actually quite enormous in our culture. People are really suffering, even though they might appear to be functioning fairly well. And you see that behind the closed doors of your therapy office. And so what inspired me to write this book was realizing that many of the dynamics that are playing out on a national level and on the level of some of the larger institutions that have a lot of power and control in our country are abuse dynamics. They're the same dynamics that you see in abusive um, individual families. For instance, that abusive adults blame their victims. I hit him because he was rambunctious. I locked her out of the house because she came in, you know, a half an hour after I told her she had to be home. Um, I beat him because he acted, you know, like a girl, you know, whatever reasons abusers always justify the abuse. So we have that coming down from the top. You know, that whole segment of the population is lazy and entitled. Therefore, we're going to withhold resources from them. We're going to put children in cages because their parents are trying to enter this country illegally or whatever we say. And what we know in the field of psychology is there's no justification for abuse or torture or murder or discrimination. These are signs of mental ill health. Because if a parent did, if a parent, when a parent, you know, kills their child or beats their child to a pulp or locks them out on a freezing night, we say that is criminal, mentally ill behavior. When the shooter comes into the school and kills innocent children, we say that's mentally ill behavior. But somehow on a governmental and institutional level, we allow it and we even condone it when it's directed at whoever we think is other. And we're, and we're trained, we're conditioned just the way an, uh, an abusive family conditions its family members to believe that the abuse is justified and that, that might equals right. That there's, you know, ra- and so what I was going to say, though, is that we're conditioned to believe on a national level that these are ideological issues of right and wrong. Some people are just inferior or they're bad or they're less deserving when actually these are signs of mental illness in our country. And I feel very strongly that that family environment is at the root of individual mental illness to a great extent and feeds the mental illness that we're seeing in individual families. This is the soup we're swimming in, you know, and I I do want to add, it's not to say that there aren't wonderful people in this country and all over the world wonderful people doing amazing things, you know, acts of kindness, volunteering, donating money to causes to help people who are underprivileged, people who go into the inner city and 
show people how to grow gardens on their rooftops or try to advocate for social justice rather than, you know, just the criminal justice program or restorative justice. So it's not to say that there there isn't this humanity rising in us and this caring for our brother and sister human beings, but we're up against a system that I think has is pervaded by a lot of mental illness. And so my book is calling it out because I think we need to know, not calling it out like this is the evil, but calling it out because we need to know if we're going to make changes. And the reason I'll just go quickly to this one last thing. The reason why I brought this all up is because you know, you were talking about how hard it is not to react negatively toward the people that seem most destructive and the most cruel and the most murderous. And yes, it is really hard. But one of the things that I talk about in great depth in my book, because this is something I've seen over the years as a psychotherapist, is that an abusive family culture breeds abuse. It, you know, violence breeds violence. And it kind of breeds two different things that I've I've said quite a lot now. And that is the two basic outcomes that I see from abusive families where there's no intervention, the abuse isn't stopped, and the survivors of that abuse don't get any help, is that people either become very passive and powerless because they've been overpowered and they don't believe there really is anything that they can do that will be effective, or they identify with the aggressor and become perpetrators on some level on a continuum themselves. And that's one of the main reasons why I believe that we have to interrupt this cycle because we're just producing more people who are passive and hopeless and helpless and more people who identify with the bully on the playground or the bully in the government. And we're having enormous abuse fallout. These are the role models our children are growing up with. These are adults are demonstrating that they resolve conflict by name calling, by aggression and murder. And I hate to say this, but bullying often is quite effective though. What are you referring to? I think bullying is is often very effective. It's a very effective means to get people to do what you want them to do. Without any doubt. There's and um, that's why bullies do it. I mean, this is and this is the domination submission dynamic. The more you bully and intimidate and threaten and harm other people, the more power you have to keep yourself in the dominating role. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt that it's effective. However, what I'm trying to lay out for America, for all of us, is that the cost to our well-being and actually, actually, I believe our future viability is really high. And the field of psychology, and then I'm, I'm going to segue back to where we started a little bit, the field of psychology is really uniquely situated to help address some of these dynamics if we would use them on a national level. Because psychology at its heart is not partisan. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. The ultimate goal of the best psychotherapy and the best psychology is to heal our human relations. It's to bring us back into loving connection, safe connection, um, reconnection with ourselves as well as with others. And one of the, you know, one of the underlying principles of any good psychotherapy, let's just say where you're bringing more than one person together, although all of this applies to individuals as well. But if you have a couple or a family in therapy, you know, that one of the underlying commitments is to nonviolent communication and conflict resolution. These are all principles of what heal us. And so if we could adopt some of this, if we had the motivation and the know-how and the education to implement these same practices in our government, we could change our country. We could, and again, I know on some level, it sounds like, oh my God, you know, we're not there, but how many people, you know, we are as healthy as our population, right? So if we each do our own healing work, where, where's the tipping point? I don't know, but I want to contribute to that. And I want to support other people to contribute to that because there's so much violence. There's so much murder. There's so much pain. There's so much suffering. There's so much violence toward the environment that 
you know, whoever can call out to some form of healing, let's do it and let's do it together. Well, you know, it's a tall order at this point. I feel like in my lifetime, a lot of progress has been made in some respects, but I also feel like technology has been such an interruptive force. And I think it's making people, it's such a distraction that I almost think that it doesn't fulfill its purpose of potentially linking us and making us more united. It seems to be such a disruptive force. I don't know. I mean, I feel grateful that there are so many therapists that are moving in this direction of energy work and bringing more into healing people than just giving them a prescription. I I think that's a very good effort. And and maybe even the psilocybin and the different things that people, the different uh, psychoactive drugs or hallucinogenic drugs. Maybe some of those can be used, you know, to, to get people out of their own immediate issues somewhat so they can then focus more on interacting better with other people. And, you know, I see enormous steps that we could take in a positive direction, but it just seems like we're getting so tangled up in a lot of things. And I don't know if there's enough people that even when you look at all the angry people, you know, that shoot up a school or whatever, did they ever get therapy? Did, was there ever even an inkling or a suggestion that they could have therapy? You know, sometimes it's about the lack of money because everything is rather expensive in this country that the treatments, and if you don't have health insurance, as you know, you're at a supreme disadvantage as to how you can even tackle these issues. Well, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I, what I think is, and you know, these are all different arguments that I make, and I'm sure I'm not alone with these arguments is that we spend billions of dollars on nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction and chemical additives that we know are poisonous to people and poisonous to the environment. It's not like the resources and the manpower isn't there. It needs to be redirected to healing our human relations. It's not like, it's not that it's not possible. It's not a priority and it's not yet a priority because I think the the general population doesn't realize how critical it is to redirect our resources and our manpower and our expertise um, toward our mental health. And, you know, mental health just is, is sort of very slowly beginning to get a positive association. But for the most part, I think it's still categorized as, you know, crazy people and people who, you know, should be able to help themselves. And why do it's a weakness if you need therapy or, you know, intervention. And we're just a curious, we're just a curious race of beings. We have no problem turning to our computer expert to help us fix the computer when it's broken or the doctor when, you know, our appendix is bursting or we need heart surgery. We rely on experts in the technological field, you know, to upgrade our computers and our telecommunications and our social media. We have no problem turning to the experts and wanting to have experts. But when it comes to human relations and actually healing our mental well-being, it's been taboo. And I think that's changing. And I want to be a part of that change because actually I think our future depends on our mental health. And mental health meaning not something esoteric about some textbook diagnosis. I'm talking about caring for one another. I'm talking about sharing. Um, I'm talking about good boundaries, nonviolent conflict resolution, tolerance and honoring of diversity, providing adequate resources for everyone, seeing ourselves as equally valuable and worthy as human beings. These are the things that make people, when they grow up with those kind in that kind of an environment, they're mentally healthy. And people who grow up, even with, you know, as imperfect as human beings are, and nobody grows up in the perfect family because we all are working stuff out. But people who are loved and cared for, who feel like they belong, who feel valued, who feel like their gifts and their talents, large or small, are wanted and who learn how to settle conflict without violence, those people don't go shoot up a school. They don't. 
you could give them an AK-47 and they wouldn't, they wouldn't use it. So our mental health is really at the basis of all of our safety and well-being. Well, the company I work for is um, maybe more progressive in the sense that they're offering like free therapy sessions and stuff to employees, but I am an employee to get that benefit. And what I see is there's probably just a lot of people whose maybe parents are not in jobs like that, where they're being offered some free therapy or whatever. And it's just such a intractable problem. I mean, I watch documentaries on and off about some of the poor regions of the U S and the struggles and like, you know, the dentists will go to a poor part of Appalachia and they've never seen a dentist before. Yeah. Yeah. And it almost brings tears to your eyes because you're like, these people are severely cut off in a way from any type of uh, preventive care or taking care of themselves really in a constructive way. Well, you you know, thank you for saying that because I, I meant to circle back around to what you had originally asked. And that's that, that the resources are being directed in places that are not helping the average person, whether their mental health, their physical health, their education, their housing. But it's not like those there's billions of dollars that go into nuclear weapons that serve no one. If we were to use those weapons, we could be gone. So that expenditure makes no psychological sense. But that's where our psychology has taken us. And that's why it needs healing. Violence and war don't solve any problems. They may stop an aggressor for a time being, but there's no war that I know of in human history that has ended war. And I think we're that's pretty clear. Well, they tend to cause long-term bitterness and hatred. Yeah. And millions of traumatized people who don't get any help and who then grow up and act out or act in, in the ways that trauma leaves them with. So, yeah, I think I absolutely agree. I think our resources need to be directed toward providing actual mental health for the average person, no matter what their income is and helping to heal the things that cause such disturbed mental health in our society, which are rampant. So yeah, I totally agree with that. The psychotherapy as it is confined to an office with, you know, a certain insurance coverage that doesn't cover most people is not going to heal the world. And, you know, originally the title for my book was going to be out of the office and into the world because it's got to come out of our offices and into the world. Well, um, just to kind of bend it back to the side again. Do you think, who do you think you're connecting with in the spirit realm? Yeah. So, you know, I've asked, and, you know, I know some people who connect in the spirit realm get names. I've never gotten a name. And what I've always been told from the very beginning is that they are really, they're not people. So it's what I've been told is it's a level of consciousness that speaks English to me because I speak English. It comes through my brain and my perceptive abilities to make itself intelligible to me, but it's a level of consciousness. It's not beings. So that's how I actually, it feels. They just means it's not a person. (laughs) It really is what it means. So it's, it's, it's defining itself as a force more than a personality. Absolutely. It's not a personality at all. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to people who connect with galactic beings right. and all sorts of characters from around the universe. And I find it quite interesting, you know, what people are perceiving. Yeah. I think it's coming in all different forms. Yeah. I think we've talked a little bit about elemental spirits and stuff like that too, on this podcast. And I think there are lower forces too, not just those above humans. But I do often think that we're quite obsessed with ourselves down here, Mm -hmm. thinking we're very important. And maybe ants, you know, with all their order are thinking they're very important, but yet we're stepping on them and crushing them whenever we can. And there's a sort of um, hierarchy somehow, even though we don't like hierarchies necessarily. I do think that there's a certain order to the universe. And I, I think that there are many beings 
way ahead of us. And then there are beings that are below us even that uh, wouldn't understand what's going on with us. We'd be too complicated for them. That's probably true. And I definitely think there's many levels of being that are maybe in body, but many out of body that are way beyond us in terms of the scope and expansiveness and depth of consciousness of what this is all about and where this is going that that I, I know that I cannot yet imagine. But I, I know when something comes to me from a place that I could not have made up, that there is a place that I could not have made up. You know, right. there's a, a level of wisdom and it's, it's so hard to translate because we live in such a concrete world, but, you know, it's really, consciousness is really vibrational and it carries messages that we can interpret and make, you know, make useful in language and in visualization for ourselves to use, but it comes, it comes as an energy that then gets interpreted through my brain. That's the only way I know how to talk about it. And I would imagine that when I leave this body, uh, it'll be accessible in a different way. That's what I imagine. Does it make you less afraid of death? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it does make me less afraid of death. And I'm probably like most of us, I'm pretty attached to being alive. <laughs> I'm pretty attached to being Phyllis. I'm attached to the people that I love and I love this earth and I'm not in any hurry to leave. But yes, I do believe that there's, that the death is not the end by any means. Yeah. I feel like I've always had a comfort level with death. Even when I was a kid, I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, I'll be okay there. You know, I'm not, I was never too worried about it, but you don't want to die in a bad way, I guess. I think that's kind of the concern that I would have. I don't want to suffer a lot. Right. Suffering is not appetizing at all to me. Yeah. I'm the same way. I think that we're human. We're in a mortal body that actually feels pain, you know, and most of us don't want to feel any more than we have to. I would say I extend that to creatures and people around me. I try to limit suffering in general. So it's not just that I don't want to suffer before I die. I don't want to cause suffering. And, you know, I have animals and I try to always treat them in a way where they're not you know, try to limit the suffering wherever I can. I don't want to leave them alone too long and, you know, lonely. And, you know, I try to pair them up with other animals if they're alone. And, you know, this is kind of, it seems like it's off topic, but I feel like I I try to make so many efforts to alleviate suffering wherever I can. And even for plants, you know, my plants, I try not to let them get too dry and suffer. You know, I just read an article where, they feel like they can register a plant's emotive response to a lack of water. It's very strong. Article, Yeah, I saw that article. I heard the sound that they recorded from the plant. They recorded the sound (laughs) of distress that the plant makes. And actually, it's not off topic what you're saying, because... One of the things that really helped me understand that that the, it, there's really a seamless connection between our mental health and well-being and the world of a higher consciousness is that there's no hatred in a world of higher consciousness. There's no judgment. There's no hatred. There's no retribution. There's no revenge. There's there's no somebody's more and somebody's less. There's nothing like that in the world of consciousness that I have been allowed to enter. And so the more we heal just on, even if it's, if we call it an ordinary level, which it's not actually ordinary, but the more we become loving beings that care about the well-being and the experience of the people around us, the plants, the animals, the earth, the more we're actually in line with where consciousness is taking us. There's no hatred in that realm and there's no war in that realm. And from the point of view that I have been told, there's no war between good and evil that's going to bring us where we're going, that's bringing people to heaven. The war between good and evil is something that ego consciousness has made up, that there's the whole belief in domination and submission. And that's the trance we're trying to break out of. And love in all its many forms is the wake up out of that trance. Well, you know, here's the deal. I think religions can lead people to a certain... You know, when I think of Christianity and the Bible and how much of the Bible, the Old Testament is a rather warlike 
nasty version of God doing some mean things, killing a lot of people. (laughs) And, you know, it's great that we've retained, you know, an Old Testament and a New Testament, but, you know, that if you read the New Testament, the words of Christ tend to cancel out all of that warlike animosity and, and eye for an eye activity. But interestingly enough, there's an awful lot of people holding on. Whenever you hold on to religion and you have all these codified stories and rules and everything that people are living by, oftentimes they hold on to the wrong part of the message for some reason. And I do see that very active in America. Oh, absolutely. There's no question that a lot of the good parts of religion have been co-opted by this desire to dominate, to uh, judge, to be better than, um, and to suppress other people. And not necessarily even for religious or spiritual ends, you know, but to serve greed and power and that kind of thing. And that's, that's all part of what ego consciousness does. You can just predict that no matter what enter, what arena ego consciousness enters, it's going to play that story, whether it's in a business or in a church or in a school or in a home. If, you know, as we wake up to the, really the healing power of love and, you know, I know it, sometimes it just sounds so Pollyanna-ish, but I really believe it because, you know, I have never, I've said this over and over again. I have never met one person who doesn't want love in their life. Yeah. I've never met one person who isn't, whose suffering isn't caused on some level by a lack of love or an injury to love or a betrayal of love. And yet the word love is not in our political discourse. It's not allowed there because it it is the antidote to overpowering and domination and greed and injustice. And so that's, this is, you know, this is where, you know, I think consciousness is rising and our unconsciousness is pushing back. And I think I, I totally believe that the evolution of our consciousness is taking us to a more loving, sustainable life on earth for human beings, if we make it. And I don't know that we will, or we won't. I just know that that's the mission. Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people on board. I mean, we have to be happy for the, the people who have already made that step and want to be loving towards others. You know, I, I'm grateful for that. You know, I do come across those people and I feel really very, um, very happy that I'm not living in a gutter somewhere being spat upon, you know? And you're one of those people and you're putting that out in the world and not to diminish what influence that might have. What we put out has an, has an effect. And, you know, we tend to focus on what the effect of the negative things is, but the the positive have an effect too. And I think we, I want to align myself around that energy. Yes, absolutely. So what about your, you you said you were going to write, or you were working on another book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for asking. Yeah. I think what really, what came to me as I finished, I finished writing this book and I'm in the process of um, trying to get it published now. Um, the book American Therapy. And what really came to me um, as I was finishing this book is that I, my next book, what I really want to write about is this intersection between psychology and spirit or psychology and the evolution of our consciousness. Because I, I think, I really do think it's where we're going and I want to be a voice of that. I, you know, you know how sometimes you, you hear something and you sort of knew it, but you didn't have the words for it. And it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. And then you have a word for it. And then then that gives you power around your decision making or how you deal with yourself or what you think about things or, you know, just it changes your life when you can put something into words. And I feel like that wants to be put into words that the healing of our hearts and the healing of our minds is actually the doorway to reconnection in our spirit. And for some people like myself, I wasn't all healed. And I think for most people, I certainly wasn't all healed when I was gifted with such a divine connection. I don't think we have to be all healed, but for some reason, my soul came in, you know, wanting to have that experience. And 
And I think we're, and I think there's many, many, many people like me. And I think we're here to share that and help, help each other open those doorways in ourselves. But yeah, that's the book I want to write. I want to bring the worlds together because I think that's where we're going. And, and there may be many other people writing about that in their way. And I'll write about it from the messages that I got. Well, I'm grateful that you're doing so. And we'll put a a link to your website in the show notes for this episode so people can find your books and and find you. Yeah. And if they go to my website, which is just phyllislevitt.com. And if you want to, if anyone wants to sign in and just leave their email address and get my newsletter, then I can let you know when my book will be available. Okay. um, Wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate this conversation and talking with you and and what you're doing because this is the great use of technology and this is the great use of social media that we can talk with anybody about the things that matter most i'm in total agreement (laughs) thank you so much for coming on and i wish you the best thank you for having me and i wish you the best as well thank you so much Dear listener, you can leave your questions and comments for this episode at disembodiedpodcast.com. Thanks for being here.